Hello everyone. I'm your Tilaka Kumar, the host of Selecta podcast. This podcast is dedicated to inspire and empower women to pursue an excellence in career by filling the gender gap, to live to the fullest of her potential and to achieve financial independence. I will be interviewing amazing successful women sales leaders and entrepreneurs from India and around the globe. Where we discuss their sales journey, their challenges, their trends and much more. Let's dive in. Welcome you, Vaishali. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. So I'll be talking two minutes uh, about you, then uh, we continue further. So Vaishali is having total 13 years experience in uh, sales. It is mainly on SaaS, machine learning, artificial intelligence. And uh, now she works as a director of global customer success and solution management at iMeri Technology. And uh, she also run on her own organization. She's head of operations at Reader Co. She and her husband do this. And uh, she's an advisor for Women in Sales Club. And uh, nationalities from uh, uh, Gujarat. So we can talk about Indian culture as well from her. So welcome, Vaishali. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm so excited to be here. Me too. So talk about your sales journey, how the sales started. Yeah, absolutely. So my sales journey actually started even before I broke into tech. I had graduated college in 2008 during a recession here in the U.S., And I found it really hard to find a job. And so I ended up in commercial banking for one of the big banks. And there as a commercial banker, I was responsible for selling their goods and services. So that's really where my sales journey started. But actually, if I think about it, so I in America am stereotypically a child whose parents, they immigrated from India as well as Africa, and they came to the US to build a better life. And so they did that naturally with stores. So we have 7-Elevens in our family as well as different convenience stores. And so I guess my sales journey actually started much younger when I was, you know, nine years old, helping my parents at their shops, either running the register or stocking the products on the shelves. And then gradually I moved into college, did more sales jobs there, and then, you know, landed at my first professional job as a personal banker at a big bank and then moved into the tech space. So really, I would say I've been actually selling my whole life now that I stop and think about that. Yeah. Okay. So what made you to shift from banking to tech sales? Yeah, for sure. That question is pretty simple. I just hated commercial banking. Um, I thought, you know, what a ludicrous idea to our employees were metriced with basically opening checking and savings accounts and then, you know, sending out debit cards. And I was like, how many of these can a person actually need? Right. So the idea strategy or the idea of actually helping people with the things that they needed seemed to be eluding the banks at that time. And they later changed their ways, which is fantastic. But for me, I just got bored in that cycle. I wanted to do something more. I had no idea what technology was, but I saw a friend on Facebook had posted this customer success position. And I was like, let me just apply for it and see if I can do this and learn new skills. And so I had no idea what a startup culture was like. I had no idea what early equity looked like. I had no idea what working at tech companies looked like. And so I just got really lucky in the sense that I landed somewhere that was amazing and a very inviting environment. And I got to grow and develop through that organization, which was the biggest blessing for me. 
and any challenges you faced uh, maybe in the initial stage because you are basically uh, you know nationality indian women and doing sales for a us client any challenges you faced yeah so i would say that i when i took my first job at demand force is about 2012 and so you know customer success was a very new concept at that time so there weren't a lot of best practices and we were kind of learning on the fly but i would say that you know everybody was kind of struggling through that because it was a shift from traditional account management to now relationship focused customer success and so the really successful people were the ones focused on building the relationships really driving communication and doing proactive outreach uh, a lot of that was challenging just because there was no playbooks or guidelines right so i wouldn't say that that was necessarily you know an indian struggle i think that that was an industry struggle but also at that time in the tech space i think it was predominantly dominated by you know cis white males and i would say that you know even to today that that is somewhat true although there has been a lot of diversity added into the tech space in the past 13 years that i've been there so all in all we're working towards the right direction there is uh inclusion conversations happening equity conversations happening people being offered seats at the table and so that needs to continue to just be amplified but back then it was it was just a lot of learning on the fly right we had to really pivot and be agile in our strategies we had to develop some of those best practices that you know the industry is following today we really had to figure out how to put the customer first 100% of the time and that in itself is a challenge okay and uh, did you see any challenges like when you when you move on to a director leadership role during the journey yeah so i got really lucky in my first tech job that the company was just doing really well and i got to experience different opportunities so i was moved into management within my first job so went from an individual contributor to a team lead to um a mid-level manager and that was fantastic so that taught me a lot at a at a young age in terms of people management coaching development and growth and so as i continued to move up into my career and manage different types of customer journeys so smb to mid market to enterprise to what i'll call strategic for multimillion dollar accounts i think there were a lot of different challenges within each of those journeys that then you know enabled me to to get to director i would say there's always going to be challenges right the biggest one is uh managing up for me and so that's managing my manager every time i wanted to have a conversation about promotion my response was oh well like let's see the work that you're going to do in the future and to that my reaction would always be well what about the work that i did for the past year and a half in this position and every time we have this conversation you tell me i'm primed for promotion but then when i try to have that conversation you're telling me i don't have enough experience right so are you happy with the work that i've done so far and do you see the potential in me to do better work for you in the future and that's why you're taking a chance on me or do we need to reset kind of expectations and conversations and and so that's that's what i think is like the challenging part as you continue to progress in your career is really managing up and then those are going to be natural struggles obstacles challenges that people are going to be facing because you know individual contributors or even mid-level managers are doing phenomenal work 
but who's tracking that, right? And when you do a performance review at the end of the year, that's great for the end of the year, but how are you keeping the momentum going day by day? And so one thing that I, I like to do is I actually just like to keep a Google spreadsheet of all of the projects that I'm doing. So, you know, who who's the original project owner? What's the progress of that project? How am I helping make an impact? And when did it get launched? And then when did it get completed? And, you know, what I would then start telling my bosses is like, look, how many of these projects do I need to do in order to be taken seriously for a promotion? And oftentimes they wouldn't have an answer. So I would give them one. I'd say, hey, I'm going to do 50 projects. I'm going to track them all right here. You have access to this doc. We'll go over in our one-on-ones. And then once we get to 50, let's have a promotion conversation, right? So that helped me significantly, but I didn't realize that until I was much later in my career that I needed to figure out a better way to manage up so that I can continue my career progression when you know the conversations at the director level senior director, VP level are are much more difficult to have when you're talking about a promotion. That's a very good advice or suggestions to all the women here, I feel truly, Vaishali, because I think that's the very challenging part, being a, especially being a woman, moving to a director role, you know, that open conversation with your boss and setting up the expectation of both of them. I think that is very important. Yeah, absolutely. And it took me a very long time to realize this. And uh, see, now you are a director and mainly your focus is upon revenue generation to active and existing customers. Okay. I think that's something, uh, it is very important topic, I feel, to open up here because many companies, what I've seen is they just, uh, you know, focus upon new development, new business development, you know, making more more effort to add more customers, visit more new customers. But how do you see it is more important to 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 ensure that, you know, we are making uh, steps to satisfy the existing customers and business? Yeah, absolutely. So when you work in SaaS, there is ultimately going to be a tipping point where your existing revenue is going to be larger than your net new revenue that you're going out to get in the market every quarter, every year, right? And so when that tipping point happens, it's really important that we now uh, are focused on maintaining customer revenue. And not only maintaining it, but gross retention is key and then net retention is important as well. So how are you expanding on that revenue? And when you look at, you know, mid-market to enterprise, I would even say that this surpasses, S- or this encompasses SMB in a certain capacity. But um it's so much easier to maintain your existing customer than it is to go out and get a new customer, right? So when you think about obtaining a new customer, marketing dollars need to be thrown to it. Sales development dollars need to be thrown to it. Maybe your account executive is getting involved early or later. Maybe a sales engineer is getting involved, maybe implementation and professional services. So when you think of the customer acquisition cost, it's very, very high at the beginning of the funnel. But your customer retention cost doesn't actually have to be high, right? Because you're not actually continuously selling them. You are trying to provide value in every interaction to reconfirm their belief that you as a vendor are their vendor of choice. And so from a customer success perspective, it does happen that the COO or the CCO, the chief customer officer, ends up 
managing or being closely related to more customer revenue than maybe the CRO is tasked with bringing in on a quarterly basis, right? So when you think of that, you got to think like, hey, we need to build very robust customer journeys with specific milestones, with key touch points to make sure that we are proactively providing value to our clients. When that proactive value happens, you become a trusted advisor, trusted partner to your customer, and they want to work with you and they want to spend their money with you. And that's the biggest thing. So in the space of enterprise or strategic accounts, on average, your expansion opportunity, like your big six-figure expansion opportunity is happening between 24 and 36 months. Between two to three years, your customer is now going to invest heavily in your organization. So what does that mean? For the first two to three years, you have to have a maniacal focus on the customer. You have to be proactive with the outreach. You have to make sure that you are just providing value in and out to your client so that eventually, right, not a year from now, not two years from now, maybe three years from now, you're getting that really big expansion opportunity. And that customer will continue to grow through their life cycle with you. Today, it's even harder because we have to worry about, you know, 10 competitors every step of the way. So if we are not critically focused on the customer's outcomes, if we are not obsessed with their data and providing them value, a competitor is going to swoop in and take this client that you've been working with, you know, for like a year, 18 months, because we failed to build that relationship with them. And so really, I think customer success needs a real big voice and a seat at the table to talk about customer programs, right? How are we including clients in our product roadmap? How are we delighting our customers with events and things that they can leverage to, to be better equipped with their, their teams? And so all of that plays a factor. And I think you know, that's why customer success is really important. And that's why I like the revenue generating aspect of customer success. So I know there's multiple camps and some people will say CS should be focused on relationship management. My belief is that through relationship management comes the outcomes that the business desires. And so it becomes a softer sell or more of a non-issue if your CSM is asking for a multi-year contract, if they are recommending the customer buy more products and services, right? It's coming from a trusted advisor of the clients. So when the CSM is asking, oftentimes there's not a lot of rejection or they get to be the good cop to maybe a salesperson's bad cop, right? That really helps drive the deal and the engagement forward. Yeah, I I totally agree, especially so. Customer focus and customer success management is so important. And before going for our main topic, I just want to want to open up this topic as um, in customer success, do you see a lot of opportunity for women getting into that kind of a role? Because it's mostly on a work from home Kind of right. Yeah, you know, like I have been work from home in a couple of different jobs in my career. I'm currently work from home. And I think if you have a structured work ethic, work from home is not a problem, right? It's if you're easily distracted, if you know you have a hard time focusing, that's when work from home becomes a challenge. But you know, what I've often found is oftentimes when I'm in the office. I don't actually get work done in the office either because I'm literally jumping from meeting to meeting to meeting versus when I'm at home, I can structure some time in my day to say, no, this is work time. Or I can have something like a no meeting Wednesday to say, hey, we're not going to have any internal meetings on Wednesdays and we're just going to produce work. 
So I would say that, you know, with the work from home culture, I think that is what you get to make of it. And I truly hope people don't um, abuse the opportunity because, you know, it is a great option for somebody who's a working mom like myself. Um, on the customer success note, I think that there is opportunity for everyone, right? I think that the most amazing thing about customer success is that it's a job that requires a lot of agility, flexibility, um, patience, and then critical thinking, right? And so I was actually telling my husband this yesterday, like 13 years of customer success just prepared me for the tantrums that my two-year-old is like giving me right now, right? So she's an amazing little girl. She's super feisty. She's very independent. And so she has her own mind and she wants to do her own things. And by constantly being on my feet for the past 13 years, I've like learned how to be agile and flexible with her to continuously distract her, right? To, To calm the tantrum down. And so that has been super, super helpful. So when I think about like what industries are really good for people to come from to be successful in customer success, I immediately think of education. I think teachers who have patients who are able to communicate to, you know, students who are maybe going through difficult times to break through and get to the other side is really important because they have the right communication skills to talk to clients, right? So we can teach the technology piece, we can teach the the language what we can teach is empathy and sympathy, right? And those two things, I think, make very, very strong CSMs because oftentimes customers just want to hear, you know, I'm sorry, we messed up. Let me make this right for you. They want to hear, you know, I'm here to partner with you and I'm here to make sure that you look good in front of your boss so that you get promoted. And they want to hear like our goal is to keep this relationship going so that you don't have to worry about getting a new vendor And you don't have to worry that I'm going to deliver value for you, right? And so I think that women are really primed for this, but I also think that like men are really primed for this, right? And I think really anybody who wants to venture into success needs to have a thick shell, needs to operate with empathy and needs to be willing to to push through the pain when the pain happens, right? So the thing that I love about CS is that not every day is the same day. But that also means that some days there's fires that need to be put out. Some days, you know, we're sowing the crops that we reap in expansion opportunities. Other days we're objection handling on a renewal. So not every day is the same. Every day is not the same. And what that means for us is like it constantly keeps us on our toes and we're continuously learning how to pivot, how to strategize in real time, how to, you know, objection handle in real time. And I think to me, that's a very strong skill set. And so, yes, women are absolutely prime for this. Yes, educators are prime for this. Yes, men are prime for this. It's about leading with empathy and being self-motivated to kind of get the job done. Okay, so being empathy and push forward yeah. yourself. Yeah. You know, I remember when you talk about two years old, even I have a two years old daughter. I've learned so much hard about sales skills, negotiation, everything. Yeah. And now she's simply asking, okay, I'll give you a kiss. You get me the noodles, <laughs> you know? Yes. Yeah. It's Their negotiation skills are amazing. I mean, a couple of weeks ago, we were just like walking somewhere and my daughter looks at my husband and she's like, daddy, pick me up. And so he's like, oh yeah, okay, baby. Of course I love you. So he bends down to, oh no, she said, daddy, give me a hug. So he bends down to give her a hug. And just as he bends down, she goes, daddy, pick me up. 
And like, he's already in the motion of going down. So then he's like, of course, I'm going to pick her up. And I was like, Rumi, did you just trick daddy? And she was like, yes. And I was like, why did you do that? And she's like, because I love him. And I was like, how do you even say no to that? Right. But like, also, how did her little two-year-old brain put those things together that if I ask him for a hug and then I tell him to pick me up, he will pick me up, you know? And to me, I'm like, I'm always thinking like, who in our house did that, that she copied? That's what I'm always thinking about is like, she copied someone who in the house did that and who did she copy? Yeah, I think there's no answer for it, right? It's like more than whatever the intelligence and the knowledge we have more than us, I believe. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're they're only two years old and she's definitely way smarter than me. So watch out world. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Vaishali, so we are coming to the main topic of the episode today, how to be disruptive without being respectful. So what is your thought process on that? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I've been in Silicon Valley SaaS companies for a long time. It's been over a decade. And there are absolutely ways to be disruptive without being disrespectful, right? And so those two are not synonymous. They do not go hand in hand. I think being disruptive is bringing strong ideas to the table, right? So not necessarily being the loudest person in the room during a meeting, but being somebody who uh, is actively listening at all times to say, okay, how can I piece together all of these puzzle pieces that I'm finding in every conversation and then building the best version of that puzzle, right? So it's almost like saying like, hey, if you attend all these meetings, I'm going to give you one puzzle piece in every single one of these meetings. After you have 10 puzzle pieces, you will either be able to make a picture of a dumpster, you'll be able to make a picture of a park, or you're going to be able to make a picture of Disneyland, right? what you decide is up to you. And so I think the disruptive people take those puzzle pieces and they come back and they make a picture of Disneyland because they're like, here's the possibilities that I see are available and here's how I think we should continue to grow and develop. And they communicate that in a way that is not disrespectful, right? So communicating it in a collaborative fashion, bringing everyone along, giving other people space to offer their opinion is not being disrespectful in my opinion, right? Like being disrespectful is saying like, here's the puzzle pieces. I made a picture of the dumpster. The dumpster is the best because I made it. Everybody needs to do this. Nobody wants to be told what to do in the workplace, right? Everybody wants to work in a collaborative, communicative fashion where ideas are being heard, different strategies are being deployed, and everybody is actively working towards a common goal. And so I think that being disruptive absolutely means sometimes, you know, blowing things up out of proportion, looking at things from a different perspective or lens, but then when you talk about how you communicate those ideas to your peers and your friends and your team members, you can do it in a non-disrespectful fashion, right? And so word choice is absolutely important. How we talk to ourselves is important. How we talk to our team members is important. And how we talk to management is important. And so making sure that, you know, you prep the conversation you're going to have with the next person, uh, that you run it through in your head once or twice to make sure it doesn't sound condescending or rude or mean or over the top 
and making sure that there's a call to action for the other person, right? So what can they do to help you bring your idea to life? And how can you work in a collaborative fashion? Any company atmosphere is not a one-person team, right? We are actually one team, one dream. So the engineering is one team, sales is one team, product is one team. But really, when you talk about the dream, the dream is the maniacal focus on the client. How do all of these teams build their engines with the same foundation and the same focus to deliver maniacal client experience that's like focused on outcomes and values, right? And so um, being disruptive, I think it's its own unique thing. And then being disrespectful is really how we just communicate and collaborate with our peers and bring everybody along for the ride, right? Like, you know, yes, there is shine and um, applaud in the I mentality, but I think that there's so much more celebration in the team mentality, right? Because everybody feels good versus just you feeling good about something. So I think disruption is absolutely necessary. Every process, every anything that you're documenting, anything that you're, you're, your journeys that you're mapping, all of those things are living, breathing, developing processes, and they need to be continuously looked at and they need to continuously evolve. And all of that requires disruption. So disruption in tech is inevitable. Disrespect in tech is avoidable, right? And, and that's the thing that we want to do is we want to figure out how to win as a team versus how to win by ourselves. And there's no fun in winning by yourself is what I've learned. I enjoy the team celebration way more than the individual celebration. And uh, it, yeah, it's a valid point, uh, Vaishali. I just want to... Uh, relate to women you know women in sales to this topic you know like even family members they always say okay you are a woman you should not be going out you should not be traveling you should not be sales all this but uh, you know we should find a way to ensure that we are not being dis being disrespectful as well as you know we should bring the ideas to to ensure that our dream is also getting fulfilled as well as you know, the family members also, we are not uh, being disrespectful. So what is your thought on that? Definitely. I think that's really hard in, in some cultures where women put their own needs first, right? And so that's like the first part of this conversation is as a woman, I need to make sure that I believe my dreams are valid. My goals are valid. My career progression is valid. I remember, you know, I born and raised in America, but I have actually pretty traditional parents. So literally when I was 18, they started this whole like, let's get you married conversation. And I was just like, what are you talking about? Like, I'm going to go to college. I'm going to do something with my life, you know? And so I had the option to move away from home. So my parents were in San Diego. I moved to San Francisco for school. For the first three months, I cried every day because I missed my family so much. Like my family is so big that I just never needed friends because I had aunts and uncles and, and whatever. It was a really hard transition, but it was the best thing that I did for my life because after college, I could move back home, which that's what my parents wanted, or I could figure out how to get a job and then like learn how to pay my own bills. And really what I learned was like financial freedom and financial well-being was the key to the handcuffs that the parents had on me. So if my parents were not supporting me financially, they didn't really have control over my life because they couldn't say, 
do this, do that. I want you to do this. I want you to do that. So that I realized very early on after I graduated that I needed to be successful, get a job, learn how to pay my own bills so that my parents could get off my back a little bit on the whole like getting married thing. And so I did that. And thankfully, I got through it on the other side. But that is just to say that like, I didn't necessarily have a five year plan. But I knew that I needed to be financially stable. So that was kind of my driver is like, how do I work hard to produce the results to get the paycheck I need to be able to live on my own and not have get money from my parents. And as that being my motivating factor, I quickly realized that like I, I had to believe in myself because I wasn't, I didn't have people around me believing in me, right? Like my family was actually just telling me like, marry a rich doctor. And I was like, okay, that's one option. Are there any other options on the table? Right. And so like when you're constantly hearing that, I think it's uh, demotivating and it suppresses and oppresses you. Right. Cause then you feel like, oh, maybe I'm not worth anything more than just like being somebody's wife. Right. Like maybe this is what I'm destined to do. But then some part of you is like, no, that's not what you're destined to do. You're actually destined to do something so much greater. Right. And so when I started focusing on my career, I was like, listen, it's just not the right time to get married. Like I need to make something. And what I would tell my mom is like, you're telling me that all your friends whose kids had arranged marriages are getting divorced now, right? Not all of them, but a handful of them are getting divorced. So they listened to their parents, they married the Indian guy of their parents' choice, and now they're getting divorced. And on top of that, you know, these women don't have anything to fall back on. So if something does go wrong in the divorce, how are they going to support themselves and their kids, right? And so to me, I was like, okay, well, I, I need to make sure that I have enough career experience, enough of a, you know, base salary, financial freedom to land on my feet if something ever goes wrong with my spouse. And so this was, you know, way before I met my husband. But that's what I would tell my parents is that like, hey, I need to be financially stable and be able to support myself with some sort of skill in order to make sure that my future is taken care of, right? Because I'm not saying that something is going to happen, but if something does happen, What's my fallback plan? What's my plan B? And so I spent, you know, my 20s really focused on building and developing my career. And that was super important to me because I needed to make sure I had something to land on my feet with later, later on in life. And so in doing that, what I quickly realized was like, if you don't have any expectations, there won't be any disappointments. So if I expect something out of my job and I haven't communicated that, then I'm going to get disappointed that I didn't get the outcome that I wanted, right? So if I didn't have expectations, I wasn't going to get disappointed. But what did that mean? I had to be heads down and I had to work hard. I had to work hard. I had to produce results, right? Whether that was produce more expansion revenue, sign longer contract deals, or coach and develop my team to do the same stuff. I had to produce results. And the Indian in me was like, cool, if you just are heads down and you work hard, you will get recognized and rewarded. But later on in my career, I found out that that's not accurate. I have to advocate and speak up for my own career in order for somebody else to notice me. So if I'm the person who is always doing the work, but I never say, hey, look at me, nobody's ever going to look at me, right? So they're going to look at my work, they're going to use my work, but they're never going to think like she's ready for a promotion. 
And so my advice to women is whatever you do, do it with confidence. Women are very well qualified in a lot of different aspects to do a number of different things. Like I, um, when I was younger and no kids and no spouse, like I could focus and spend like 10 to 15 hours a day on work. I really enjoyed it. I felt like I was earning my money. I wanted to do that. Now as a mother, you know, I'm working from maybe, you know, 6.37 a.m. to 5 p.m. And it's like, I'm done, right? Like I try not to work um, too much at night because I, I need to compartmentalize and focus my life on my kids now, my spouse, my family, my job, right? So now I'm a, a multifaceted human with a lot of different areas that I'm focusing in and that's okay, but I need to be more strategic with how I'm utilizing my time. And women, I think, do this really, really well because even if you're looking at you know a new bride, she has to do the cooking in the house. She has to do the cleaning in the house. She has to make sure everybody has, you know, snacks and meals on time. So she's operating on a very strict schedule. She knows what her next task is. You can apply that to the workforce and have the same outcomes, right? But what does that mean? That means that in the household, everybody needs to step up to help support her, right? So she can't do the cooking all the time, but that's okay because if she's bringing money in, that's increasing everybody's quality of life, right? So it's a give and take in a lot of different communities where the woman is predominantly doing the majority of the housework, doing the majority of the childcare, and then is expected to do something else, right? And so what I would say to women is like, it's okay to be selfish. It's okay to put, you know, what you want to do on the table, along with what everybody else wants to do on the table and say, I want to give this a fair shot. It's okay to not know something and apply for that job anyways. That's the most important thing is like, do not apply for a job when you feel you can do 100% of the requirements. Apply for a job when you feel like you can do 60 to 70% of the requirements so that you're giving your space or you're giving yourself space and time to learn something new right? You don't want to be bored when you go into a job on day one. You want to be excited about growth and development. And so apply for the bigger position. Apply for the one that you've never seen before. Apply for the management role, right? Because especially for like stay-at-home moms who are going back to work, your project management skills are on point. Your negotiation skills are so strong. Your selling skills are so strong, right? Your um, uh, time management is so strong you are so primed for the workforce. Like dealing with the workforce is a piece of cake after you've dealt with kids day in and day out, right? And so <laughs> um, you can really leverage all those skills to amplify your next role. But I would love for women to have more confidence and to apply for roles that they are less qualified for so that they can continue to learn and grow and develop as they progress in their journeys. Yeah, so I really like, you know, managing a workforce is... Uh far less than managing a kid. So if you're able to manage your kids so well, it is easy for you. I think that confidence is uh, the way the women have to look at it, I believe. Yeah. Fundamentally, though, like the household needs to share the responsibility as well, right? So a lot of women don't feel like they can venture into the workplace, even though they're super qualified, because who's going to clean the house? Who's going to do the cooking? who's going to make sure the kids are picked up from school, right? So it's very, very important that their spouse shares in, um, you know, if they live with extended family, that the extended family steps in to really help. Because 
only when we invest in our women can our women invest in our workplace and the workforce and can everybody shine, right? And so we are all connected in this very complex neural network where one synapse fires another synapse, right? And we just have to make sure that we're amplifying the right pieces to produce the best outcomes. Yeah. So, and I know you have a five months old baby, Vaishali. So how you manage five five months old baby, two years old, the daughter, daughter, I believe, right? Yeah. Two girls, Rumi and Razi. So how you manage all those? Yeah. I don't know. Um, that's that's the real answer. So Rumi is two years and four months old. And then Razi just turned six or she's going to turn six months old tomorrow. I don't know how I'm managing it. I literally wake up in the morning and go to sleep at night and like stuff happens during the day. But again, it, it's a team effort, right? So like on days like today where I start work really early, my husband steps in to get the girls, um, make sure they have breakfast, they're dressed and ready for the day. I'm fortunate that my parents and my sister live with us. So my parents are the primary caretakers of our kids while we're at work. And then my sister helps wherever she can, but she also is working from home. And so it takes an absolute tribe to make all of this stuff happen. I'm so thankful for my tribe, but that doesn't mean that me as a mom doesn't want to be downstairs with my kids all the time, right? Like, my kids aren't in preschool yet. They're still at home. So I hear them like having fun or crying or whatever. And I'm like, oh, I should be down there. But the reality is, is like they also need time away from me, right? So they need to be able to learn and grow and develop on their own, especially the toddler. She needs to have communication skills with people that are not mom and dad. It's not easy, but it's also important for me to have adult conversations, right? To continue to develop myself. And so time management is crucial at the end of the day. There are designated time periods for my children, right? So like lunch is to uh, put my toddler down for a nap and then to, you know, have some lunch with my husband, get some downtime and then go back to work. And like making sure your schedule is really tight is important. So if you need breaks, putting those breaks in your calendar, again, is really important. Standing up to stretch, really important exercising a little bit, really important, right? Like I'm lucky that my office is my bedroom plus my office plus our gym because the Peloton is in there. So I can literally spend eight hours in my bedroom and I don't have to go anywhere, but thank God the coffee is downstairs. So I have to walk up and down the stairs sometimes, but yeah, time management is just key when, when trying to deal with everything all at once. You already answered my next question. Usually ask is, the daily habits, you know, which helps you professionally as well as personally. I think you already mentioned exercising and... Yeah, sleep is so important. Like women in general just need more sleep for their hormones and all of that jazz. So if I had free time, I would sleep straight up. I would just sleep. But coffee is a big, big one. I try to limit myself to two cups of coffee a day. So, you know, not going overboard. Um, drinking a lot of water and staying hydrated is really, really important. So I always have, you know, my Stanley cup next to me, exercising and just moving. So, you know, thankfully we have an exercise bike, but we have a beautiful park right across the street. And so going to Going out to walk, to get your body moving, to free your mind a little bit is really important. Making sure you eat a balanced diet is really good too. So uh, I don't do this every day, but I try to eat healthy Monday through Friday and I try not to indulge in carbs. They just make me sleepy. 
And then development for your brain, right? So joining a book club, reading something on the side, I think is really, really important to make sure that we're continuously exercising all of our muscles. Okay, so we are close to the episode. What what you feel is the success secret of your success? Just one or two words to put in. I would just say hard work. You know, Netflix has a phenomenal documentary called Stutz out right now, S T U T Z by Jonah Hill, and it's a conversation with his psychotherapist. And Phil Stutz says there's three things that are true: pain uncertainty and the fact that you have to continue working hard and those are the th- the three things that actually keep me motivated right to continue to go because i have to figure out how to pivot strategize uh, develop a plan of action in order to move forward and so that is a real truth that leads to success is the fact that you know even if there's pain even if you are certain that you are continuously moving forward to get to the other side and i think oftentimes you do find infinite potential on the other side of your failure right and so that is really important and then the other thing is like i think as we get older um a bas a, a basketball coach from duke said this i think she says you know you just learn how to handle hard better so life doesn't get easier we just get better at handling hard things faster more efficiently more effectively so that we can get through them on the other side and so yeah so so those are probably my two motivating factors is that i just got to keep going because there's no other option right and then i think when you have kids ultimately you're like my kids are watching me and i want them to be proud of me right like selfishly i want my kids to be like oh look at my mom mm-hmm. you know and so how do i do things that are going to simultaneously make them proud but also not pressure them to make them feel like they need to you know replicate my success and so um it's just a fine balancing act every every step of the way wonderful wonderful uh, vishal even i remember you know whenever i wear all this suit she also wants to be <laughs> so that actually inspired them Yes, how you talk to them, how you look in front of them, all of those things matter, you know. I I went to an engagement party this past weekend and I came down in an in Indian outfit and my daughter was like, "Oh my god, mommy, like you look so pretty. I want one of those." And it's like, "Yes, you have like 10 <laughs> outfits sitting upstairs. We'll we'll put one on you, right?" But she she loves it. Like she wears the bindi all the time. She wants to wear like the necklaces and the jewelry and and I love it because I'm like, "This is absolutely part of who you are right you are half indian and i hope that you embrace that half because that half meant a lot to your mom and so i hope that you know you you want to know about your culture as well how uh, audience want to reach if they want to reach you mission yeah i'm on linkedin um please feel free to follow connect with me on linkedin um i'm on social media it's just shali read um so instagram tiktok um i use actually tiktok to create videos about um interview best practices interview questions navigating difficult conversations and affirmations so you know if anybody does want to follow please feel free to follow me there and i'm on linkedin i post great stuff on linkedin in terms of content as well so yeah those are, those are the, just the couple places that you can find me okay vaishali so it was awesome to have you here today it's my honor to have you this was an amazing experience uh thank you so much for all that you're doing to to advocate and elevate women i think that that is phenomenal so keep doing the great work thank you vaishali my 
Take care. Thank you for listening to Sell Like Her podcast. Do subscribe and share so that it reaches the maximum women to get benefit by listening successful women's stories. Let's join together and support each other to change the face of sales. Meet you in the next episode. Until then, bye. Take care.